You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For January 23rd, 2019, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. So far, we've operated solar systems rather passively. Be they rooftop PV systems or utility-scale systems, we design them to produce as much power as they can at all times and send that power through relatively simple inverters, which pass as much of that power as possible through to the host site or to the grid immediately. This way of operating solar systems made sense, because solar systems were expensive, and the sooner they could generate revenue and pay for themselves, the better. Whether that mode of operation was the best mode wasn't a question that anyone asked while solar was still generating a share of power measured in the single digits. But after nearly two decades of growth in solar electricity generation, that's no longer the case. We're beginning to ask different questions now, like how do we integrate large shares of renewable power from wind and solar onto a grid that is still mostly based on thermal generators that like to stay as near to full power as possible all the time, mainly coal and nuclear plants, but also some plants that run on natural gas. In other words, inflexible plants. If they can't easily turn down as much as needed to accommodate solar and wind when they're ready to ramp up, what should we do? Especially if the grid doesn't seem to have a lot of room to integrate more variable resources. The standard answer to this conundrum has been adding storage. If the grid can't take any more wind and solar when it's producing, then divert that production to a storage system, usually a pumped hydro or a battery system, and use it later, after the sun goes down and the wind stops blowing. But storage systems are still more expensive than running existing generators in many cases, and storage is only beginning to figure in utility resource procurement plans. Until recently, utility-scale wind and solar systems generally weren't built with integrated storage systems, and project developers still don't build them with the expectation that storage will be added later. So the standard operating procedure has been curtailment. If there isn't enough demand for the power or the transmission grid can't accommodate more wind and solar power, then simply shut the systems down. Curtailment of wind and solar resources typically occurs because of transmission constraints such as congestion, but it can also be done in order to avoid forcing inflexible so-called baseload generators, such as nuclear and coal plants, to breach their minimum generation thresholds and shut down entirely, or to maintain power quality by keeping it within technical voltage and frequency specifications. As more wind and solar join the power grid, curtailment has increasingly become a fact of life for those plant operators, even though it hurts their earnings. You simply can't keep pouring water into a full bucket and expect the bucket to absorb it. Although, as wind and solar get cheaper, curtailment becomes less of a hit to the bottom line. Which brings us to some new answers to the problem of generating more variable renewables. Make them flexible. Instead of always running wind and solar plants full bore, or curtailing them, just turn them down a little bit. Or maybe make them completely flexible, able to ramp up and down at will, after deliberately providing enough room on their connections and host grids to allow that. 
Having already assumed a good deal of curtailment of wind and solar assets on their systems, progressive grid managers such as the California Independent System Operator, or CAISO, are beginning to think about these new modes of operation. And E3, an energy consultancy, has for years been doing modeling for CAISO to help them understand what high levels of renewables on their grid might look like and how to manage those assets. So today it's our privilege to bring to you a very geeky but hopefully understandable interview with Arnie Olson, an expert at E3. Arnie specializes in bulk electric system operations and the investment needs of expanding renewable energy production, and he has consulted extensively for utilities, electricity system operators, asset owners, project developers, electricity consumers, and regulators. In 2013, he led the technical analysis and drafting of the landmark report investigating a higher renewables portfolio standard for California, which documented the challenges of and solutions for achieving a 50% renewable grid in California by 2030. His latest paper for E3, titled Investigating the Economic Value of Flexible Solar Power Plant Operation, explores these new modes of operation that can make solar a flexible resource, and I'm sure this interview will really get your mental wheels spinning. Then in the news segment, we'll look at a number of record-breaking projects and unprecedented developments for renewables and storage, including a batch of amazingly low-priced Solar Plus storage PPAs in Hawaii, a commitment to zero-emissions buses in California, a bold new goal for renewable power in Washington, D.C., a new battery storage system in Colorado, and the exciting results of an offshore wind lease auction in offshore Massachusetts. But first, our interview with Arnie Olson, recorded December 10th, 2018. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Arnie, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You know, I actually wound up inviting you to be on the show after a pretty healthy round of debate erupted on Energy Twitter, which I think was instigated by Eric Hittinger and amplified by Cody Hill, about how overbuilding solar can be a legitimate strategy for grid expansion. The idea, I think, is that in the future, when we have these grids that are powered by a very large share of variable renewables, it might actually make economic sense to build more wind and solar capacity than the grid can actually currently absorb and just curtail its output when the grid can't take anymore because that would still be cheaper than building long-term or seasonal storage. Is that the right way to think about this? Yeah, absolutely it is. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, and that's kind of where I cut my teeth in terms of looking at electricity system economics early in my career with my six years at the Washington State Energy Office. And in the Northwest, the dominant resource is hydro. Now, one thing you know about hydro is that hydro spill is a reality at every facility. Water varies from year to year. It varies from day to day, from month to month. It is a variable resource. It does have some control with the systems of dams and reservoirs and powerhouses and et cetera. But, you know, it's simply not economic to size the hydropower dams and powerhouses to be able to generate every megawatt hour of potential energy that you might have in kinetic energy coming down the river. Right. So it's just a reality, and everyone plans their system with that knowledge in mind. And I've been giving talks around the West with the theme that solar is the new hydro. Huh. Because the planning challenges, the way that you deal with solar, just reminds me a lot of hydro in the sense that there will be abundant amounts of basically free energy it won't always come when you want it, and at times you might have more than you want, but just like it's not economic to size the dams to harvest every megawatt hour of hydropower, it won't be economic to size the grid to harvest every megawatt hour of potential solar or wind power that might be available. Right. 
And that makes perfect sense from the perspective of managing a resource or just making sure you have ample supply. Of course, the problem is if you're a wind or a solar farm developer and your power is getting thrown out instead of paid for, that's not great for you economically, which I don't know how much of an issue that is with dams, but we're going to talk about that today. Mm -hmm. So just to continue sort of setting the context here, I think we all expect that eventually when it's cheaper, we will build out a lot of storage capacity on the grid and then it'll be fairly easy to just bolt that on and start absorbing the excess wind and solar generation instead of curtailing it. But I guess my question is, is there any thought of sequencing here? Like, is that something that a developer of a wind and solar farm can really bank on when they're building one that they know that it's going to be oversized to start with when it goes into operation, but then later storage is going to absorb that capacity? I mean, does anyone build an oversized wind or solar farm with that expectation? Or wouldn't that make the process of financing the project even more complex if you had to sort of bank on storage being built later? Yeah, absolutely. No, the reality is that that the developers, when they're preparing to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on projects, they need to have all the financing locked up so that they have a certain revenue stream over a 20 or 25 year lifetime of the original contract. So they sometimes have curtailment provisions in the contract that say a certain amount of curtailment is allowed, but it's usually capped at some amount, let's say 2% of the total available energy. And then if the system operator wants to curtail it more than that, then there's provisions where they will still get paid even though their resource wasn't actually absorbed. Interesting. Okay. I guess I have to wonder what the economics of that look like, I mean, for the grid operator. Well, the real question is who's going to bear the risk of the curtailment and and the risk of the negative pricing that comes along with it. Right. And so typically when these long-term contracts are signed, there is a source of revenue that's at the other end of it. So there's either a rate payer or there's a large corporate buyer, you know, a utility at the other end of it that has a lot of financial means to manage that risk. Right. So what we're seeing is that typically the, it's the off-taker that bears the majority of the risk. But it's definitely the case that some of the older contracts that were signed before this notion that there would be a lot of curtailment make it a little bit unclear. So there probably are some project owners that are at some financial risk from this. I think going forward, everyone understands that this is a potential and the newer contracts have provisions in them to deal with it. Oh, interesting. Okay. So the evolution of the contract itself and its sophistication developing over time is definitely a key factor here. Yeah. I mean, originally the only provisions for curtailment in the early contracts were just emergency, right? grid oversupply, force majeure, and, and no one gets paid when there's force majeure. Right. So this notion that there would be economic curtailment or pervasive curtailment is relatively new, but it's definitely on the minds of banks and developers, financers, et cetera. Or even planned curtailment, I guess, is really what we're talking about here, right? Yeah, that's right. It's curtailment as a grid management, grid integration strategy, because the resource is being used in a way that's economic and beneficial to the grid, and they need to get paid, right? Right. Project development will grind to a halt if there's too much risk out there and people are losing money on contracts that they signed three and four years ago. Exactly. All right. So I think that this can get a little abstract. So I think maybe it would be helpful here to talk about an actual system and how excess wind and solar production are curtailed and then how that's accommodated in system planning. So let's consider the California ISO, CAISO, which is the wholesale market and bulk power balancing area in California. Your company, E3, has developed a model called Resolve, which the California Public Utilities Commission, the CPUC, has adapted to 
explore various ways that the state grid might evolve and inform their efforts to develop an integrated resource plan, or otherwise known as an IRP. And I should note that this is actually a fairly unique process in California because IRPs are typically prepared by distribution utilities to plan out their procurements, right? And not by an ISO or an RTO, that next level up, to give direction to the distribution utilities, IRPs, which is what's happening here. And and now we've lost 95% of our audience. But uh, (laughs) carrying on, so for those who are still with us in the quasi-IRP, the CPUC is developing, which they call a reference system. They use this resolve model from E3 to explore some of the constraints that limit the flexibility of the system and exacerbate renewable curtailment, as well as various ways of reducing curtailment, such as shifting the load of EV charging into the valleys or when there's excess power, or using pumped hydro storage to soak up the excess renewables that would otherwise be curtailed. And it finds that those measures which can reduce curtailment also tend to increase total resource costs. So let's dig into this a little bit because I think it's not immediately obvious. So first, what are some of the factors that make curtailment cheaper than either right-sizing a wind or solar plant so that it will not be curtailed or building in storage and flexible demand to absorb the excess? I mean, it's really just a matter of the cost-benefit trade-off. So everything that you do to reduce curtailment at the bulk grid level, typically, almost everything, costs money, right? There's either a capital investment that's required up front, or there's some ongoing payment that's required. And it's simply a matter of, is that amount of money that you're paying for that curtailment solution, is that more or less economic than slightly overbuilding the solar fields or the wind fields and throwing away a little bit of the energy. So it's simply a matter of cost-benefit trade-offs. And there is one solution that doesn't cost money. In fact, it saves money, and that's greater regional coordination, expanding the CAISO footprint. And that is one that they're pursuing through expansion of their energy imbalance market and now looking at ways to expand that into the day-ahead market. So that is the one thing that you can do that saves money even before you think about solar curtailment. But almost everything else... Yeah, we actually discussed Western grid regionalization with Laura Wisland of Union of Concerned Scientists in episode 69. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we've covered that in some depth. But I guess it makes sense sort of on the face of it that if you have to build in a lot of additional storage to absorb excess in order to avoid curtailment, that that is going to drive up system costs. But then my next question, obviously, is what are the assumptions about what future battery costs will be that lead to that conclusion. Mm -hmm. And when I was looking at the CAISO IRP guidance here, I didn't find that data. I assume it's buried in the resolve model somewhere and, you know, Mm -hmm. it wasn't exposed there. So what are the assumptions that we use here when we're assuming that adding battery storage is going to drive up total system costs to avoid curtailment? Yeah, so, you know, I'm not going to be able to pull the numbers directly out of the model and from my head. Okay. And part of that is because the resolve runs that are public now were basically done about a year ago and wrapped up in February, and since then, storage costs have continued to decline. So typically, we're always scrambling for the latest data on storage costs and solar costs as well, because as solar gets cheaper, it becomes more and more economic to just simply overbuild. So the economics of solar and storage are competing with each other a little bit in terms of what's the most economic solution. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, But we have the most recent information that's available. We have quite aggressive assumptions about cost declines for storage in particular. And what the Resolve model does is it sorts through a variety of different solutions. So it will compare the cost of building solar at different locations, 
which might reduce the curtailment a little bit just due to the timing of the sunrise and sunset. It will sort through whether it's more economic to build wind, even though wind might have a slightly higher first cost than solar. If you already have a grid that's saturated with solar, then it might make sense to acquire a diverse resource like wind or even geothermal, which is quite a bit more expensive but produces power around the clock. It'll look at the potential for adding batteries onto the system. It will look at pump storage. There's several different pump storage projects that have been proposed in California, which have slightly different characteristics than the battery projects. It can look at flexible EV charging, flexible loads, a variety of other solutions like that to help reduce curtailment. So it sorts through all of those things and finds the least cost optimal portfolio of solar plus storage plus wind plus whatever else gotcha. to meet an RPS target or a greenhouse gas target you know, in 2030 or even all the way out through 2050. So it's quite a interesting and sophisticated optimization that sorts through all of those potential things and finds the least cost portfolio. Gotcha. Okay. And obviously that's going to be sensitive to assumptions and, you mm-hmm. know, you can caveat it all day long about how you think the grid is going to evolve or how you think costs are going to change over time or, you know, what have you. Well, and there's always some curtailment in them. Okay. Even after it finds the least cost set, and it will add some storage. In fact, in our runs that we published for the CPUC, there were, I think, 3,000 megawatts of battery storage added by 2030. And that was on top of the mandate that California already has for 2,000-something megawatts by 2024. Hmm. So it did find some battery storage as part of the least cost solution by 2030. But even with that, there's still 4 or 5% of the available renewable energy is still curtailed. Uh, again, it's simply not going to be economic to build enough batteries to absorb all of the potential renewable energy. Or, you know, pre earlier point, to flip that around, it's because solar is cheap enough that you don't really mind that curtailment. Yeah. And the cheaper it gets, the less you mind it. Right. Okay. Because, you know, I think a lot of, in fact, just this morning on Twitter, I was having a chat with an energy guy about how much of a problem is curtailment. And, you know, I think from a grid balancing perspective, some people think it's a big problem. Or they're worried that the future of solar is going to be imperiled by it just becoming too cheap. And I'm not really seeing that in this modeling. No, it's sort of like, you know, you're a victim of your own success. You know, you really don't get to a place where you're curtailing large amounts of solar until you have large amounts of solar on the grid to curtail. Right. So in our scenarios, we're fast forwarding 10 years or 15 years into the future where we have 50% of the energy in California coming from renewables. We're not anywhere near that today. We're only at 33, you know, ish percent today. So after we build 10,000 or 15,000 megawatts more solar, then we will have a significant amount of curtailment happening during 10% of the hours, let's say, of the year in California. Is that a crisis? Is that a problem? I wouldn't define it that way. I think it's a function of the least cost way to serve load with that amount of renewables on the grid. Well, if that's the case, then what's your view on this so-called value deflation argument, which I actually think should be called a price deflation argument, that eventually solar gets too cheap to finance additional solar? I don't know that I understand that. (laughs) The cheaper the solar is, then the cheaper it is to build a power plant out there, you know, on the ground somewhere, the less revenue the developer needs from the market. So the question then still becomes, is there enough revenue available in the market to be able to finance the plant? The revenue will come from displacing fossil generation on the margin in the energy market, 
maybe providing a little bit of capacity value, but then also from the rec value. Mm-hmm. And the rec value would get exactly to these questions of how well does the solar fit on the grid relative to other renewable resources, wind and geothermal, et cetera. If you have to meet X percent of your load with renewables, then those are your choices, wind, geothermal, solar. Right. And the cheaper solar gets, the more of an advantage it has in that race, then the countervailing factor is as you get more and more solar, the grid becomes saturated. And so the value of the solar also declines. Right. And I guess that's where this argument goes. They're saying, you know, as as the actual price of power from solar paid out, you know, through a PPA or whatever, continues to decline, perhaps it gets to a point where there's just not enough revenue to justify putting up the money to build another solar plant. Yeah, no, then that's fair enough. I mean, saturation is real. And solar is more subject to this than wind. Just because wind, the patterns of generation are more chaotic. It's more variable. Throughout the year, you'll have some hours of high wind and some hours of low wind. With solar, you pretty much know that in 25% of the hours of the year, that's when the vast majority of the production is going to be concentrated. Right. And so it happens more quickly. It's easier for everyone to see and understand the phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And it definitely is the case that as more and more solar gets added to the grid, the value of adding additional solar declines. And so then it just becomes how fast does that decline happen? What's the relative cost difference between solar and the competing technologies like wind and geothermal, the relative availability of those? And then at what point does it make sense to start adding batteries to the solar to help move the energy around and make it more valuable? And how does that compete with wind as a standalone resource or maybe even wind with batteries? Right, because if you have enough storage capacity, in theory, your your solar generation can be as high as you want, right? I mean, in theory, it could be 100% if you had sufficient storage. Mm-hmm. However, batteries aren't the only type of storage and probably wouldn't be the only type of storage in a high solar world that would make sense, right? Because you would need other kinds of storage to deliver, for example, long-duration storage or this concept that we're going to need a lot of seasonal storage, which I'm still not entirely sure about how much we'll actually need. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you might have other kinds of systems that provide that storage. You might have thermal systems. You might use more pumped hydro. You might use other things. So Mm -hmm. value depletion, you know, that argument really depends on storage not being either scalable enough or economical enough. That's right. I mean, I think what we'll see in the marketplace is that as more and more solar gets added, you'll see a depression of daytime energy market prices. Then you'll continue to see these price spikes that happen around sunrise and sundown as thermal generators need to get turned on to help manage the ramps and to help serve load in the evening. So that price differential that you see during the daytime will create an opportunity for storage to come in and harvest some of that value for themselves through energy price arbitrage. So that will be a visible value stream for storage. And then the question for storage is also an economic one in terms of which resource will be the least cost, which resource will be able to scale the fastest, and batteries seem to be winning the race right now, I would say, although I certainly wouldn't rule out the idea that some pumped hydro projects might get built somewhere in the West or that some new technologies might come along. Right. So that's important to realize then is that future storage builds are really ultimately competing against the price of fossil fuel power generation. Yes, certainly they are. 
in many of the scenarios that we are modeling that are very heavily policy-driven, in that world, maybe they aren't, right? If there's a world in which you're already determined that you're going to get 50% of your energy from a clean energy source, renewable or hydro or nuclear, or 80% or 100% of your energy from those, then in those futures, the batteries or the storage technologies really aren't competing with fossil generators. They really are competing to be the least cost way to deliver the largest amount of renewable energy to the system. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. So there's kind of an evolution there and what they're competing against. All right. So let's go back to Kaiso and explore this a little more. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. Now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. The march to ever lower prices for solar plus storage systems continues. In early January, the Hawaiian Electric Company sent seven astonishing PPAs to state regulators for approval, which collectively would add 262 megawatts of solar and over 1,000 megawatt hours of storage across three of the islands. Six of the seven bids came in under 10 cents a kilowatt hour, with the seventh at just 12 cents. If approved and built, this massive batch of projects would collectively nearly double the installed base of storage projects in the entire U.S. at prices a full 42% lower than those received in 2016. They would also help double the state's current reductions in oil demand, according to Hawaiian Electric, which is critical because Hawaii's grid is still mostly powered by diesel generators, with oil supplying between 58 and 79% of electricity across the utilities system in 2017. Importantly, one of the contracts from AES would pay a lump sum to the developer based on net energy potential and availability rather than delivered energy, which would reduce the curtailment risk for the developer and give the utility the flexibility to operate the plant more like a dispatchable plant. Item 2. 
In mid-December, California regulators unanimously approved a rule requiring the state's transit agencies to transition to zero-emissions buses. A quarter of new bus purchases have to be zero-emissions by 2023, and all new bus purchases must be zero Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network. Thank you.